Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hadley and welcome to another edition of the Viewfinder Podcast. Since its publication over 400 years ago, legendary Spanish author Miguel de Cervantes' two-volume novel The Ingenious Gentleman Don Quixote of La Mancha has been regarded as one of literature's greatest works. The book chronicles the adventures of Don Quixote, a romantic noble turned daring crusader who creates a new identity for himself, that of a knight out to re-establish chivalry and to fight for the honor of Spain. Accompanying him is Quixote's trusted squire, the decidedly grounded farmer Sancho Panza. While De Cervantes' classic has entertained generations of readers, it's also become an important influence for authors, composers, and filmmakers over the centuries. Though Don Quixote has been adapted in many forms across literature, stage, and screen, the novel itself has been notoriously challenging for some of Hollywood's greatest auteurs, Orson Welles and Monty Python's Terry Gilliam, just to name a few, to translate to the constraints of a motion picture. In April 2019, Gilliam's long-delayed The Man Who Killed Don Quixote finally debuted to American audiences. Yet at the 2018 New Orleans Film Festival, moviegoers got their first look at a uniquely Louisiana adaptation of the literary masterwork. The critically acclaimed indie production The True Don Quixote, written and directed by Chris Poche and co-produced by Beth Bravant, my guest on today's edition of the Viewfinder podcast. You can see The True Don Quixote on Amazon Prime, Xbox, Apple TV, and Google Play, as well as on demand via DirecTV and Redbox. Shot in St. Bernard Parish and set in the present day, this hilarious and thought-provoking picture stars Tim Blake Nelson as Danny Kehoe, an unemployed librarian who spends so much time devouring those legendary tales of knights in shining armor, he ultimately decides to become the greatest knight ever written, Don Quixote. Donning a homemade coat of arms, Danny, or Don Quixote, casts an ordinary teenager named Kevin, played by Jacob Batalon, into the role of Sancho Panza. Together, they go on an entertaining search for nobility and love, one that fascinates townsfolk while infuriating the cops and Danny's worried niece, Janelle, played by Anne Mahoney. Before you watch the true Don Quixote, though, listen as Poche and Bravant talk about the making of their award-winning movie on this week's Viewfinder podcast. Now, Chris, um, given that countless filmmakers have tried and struggled to adapt Miguel de Cervantes' classic Don Quixote into a feature film, what were some of the major challenges you faced when adapting that novel and its elements into the true Don Quixote? Uh, the, first, the first challenge, of course, is the length. It's a 940-page book, the two of them together. Um, so the, the big decision is what you're going to include and what you're going to leave out. Um, it's hard to throw away 800 pages of Cervantes because the writing is so beautiful. But it's a little episodic. I, uh, I actually saw a play not that long while we were shooting of Don Quixote done locally. And they told the story by using all the anecdotes I cut out um, and none of the ones I did. So it's, there's so many parts to it that you have some latitude about what you keep. Um, but it's a daunting thing, the scale of it. And compared to all the other film and stage productions that have used the novel as source material, the true Don Quixote is set in modern times as opposed to 15th century Spain. What inspired you to make that creative choice, and do you feel that made the challenge of transforming the novel to a motion picture easier? 
I think it definitely made it easier. Um, if for no other reason, the production, um, it's incredibly difficult and expensive to make period film. Uh, and you can't really do it on a small budget. Part of it was, I just felt like the story is so timeless. It didn't matter. I mean, my whole MO was, I don't, it doesn't matter when or where it happens. This could happen anywhere to almost anyone at any time. And there's even a, in my mind, there's even this contrivance that it happens over and over again. And there's been hundreds of Don's Quixote. Um, and this is just one of them. And the same thing happens. Somebody gets so disillusioned and disappointed in their life that they walk out of the door one day and decide to live the life that they dream of. And, and the other part of it is money. I mean, there's that too. It's like you just can't, you know, we couldn't have afforded horses, let alone to create a, yeah. a Spanish village in 1605. But you guys did a tremendous job, you know, just adapting the whole thing to a modern setting, specifically St. Bernard Parish. And I was really impressed by it. And I, a lot of the things that even if people who haven't read the novel, they will notice right away that the film deals with themes of love and loyalty and chivalry, even though, of course, in Don Quixote, chivalry had long since disappeared by then. And it was the story of one man trying to restore it against all odds, even though he was rather delusional, I would say. But I think that the film itself definitely does relate. People can relate to it, given the themes that it explores and no matter what the setting is and no matter who's involved in it. Yeah, that's great. I think so. It's uh, it's it's very universal, and that's interesting. You picked that up. A lot of people don't realize that in the novel, even in the novel, that being a knight was really anachronistic. It was three hundred years after knights had pretty much ceased to matter uh, when he wrote the book. A lot of people think Don Quixote existed at the same time that that proper knights did, but he didn't really. It would be like you deciding to hard to dress up as a cowboy and go dispense frontier justice, you know, 300 years too late. Given that the novel was 900 pages and the true Don Quixote is a nearly 90 minute film, how did that influence your approach to writing the screenplay for the film and in what you ultimately decided to include in it? Whew, that's a good question. Um, I still feel like there was a lot left out, um, but you have to be expedient in order to get it done. Um, and again, a lot of the, their whole, the, those 900 pages are a little bit of a trick too, because there are whole sections of it that aren't actually part of the story. There are two little novels built inside of the novel, um, stories that other people tell. And I was really focusing on trying to make opportunities for Don Quixote and Sancho and for other characters to be involved that we could sort of follow in a more, more of a film format than a novel format. The novel goes all over the place. Um, but you know, some of it was collapsing characters. The niece is actually four or five characters in the novel all collapsed. I made them one character just so that we could remember who she was and follow her. Um, There's quite a bit of that, actually. And how do the other characters relate back to the original text in terms of the people who are opposing Don Quixote, the police, and all the other people that he meets, especially in those bar scenes. Most of those characters are actually right out of the novel. And I even kept some of the names. Um, there's a poet named Cardenio and who's Carl. And there's a, a Fer Fernando Ferdinand, 
Ferdinand, who is Ferdy, um, and Dorothea is Dorothy, and, and I sort of just kept them. The detective character is my invention because he, he's just a representative, sort of, of the, the forces of conformity. It's not, it's not really personified so much in the book. But most of them, if anything, I was too loyal to the book. It's funny because I set it in a different time, but the stories themselves, the episodes and the story and the characters are very, very loyal to the book. There, there were, he, did, he didn't attack chickens in the book. He attacked a herd of sheep. That's another financial adjustment. Um, but there was a poet in love with a woman who had been duped and run off with her best friend, his best friend. And all of those things happened in the book. I just kind of had to boil them down. And of course, in the true Don Quixote, Don Quixote, as played by Tim Blake Nelson, did not attack windmills. He had tilted at an oil field pump jack. It was quite an interesting touch. Yeah, it took me a while to figure out how to do that. But it... It's um, it's the same thing, right? It didn't. In fact, that was the first thought that made me think I could do this. Was that it didn't matter that he fought a windmill, it mattered that it wasn't a giant. Like it just mattered what he thought it what it wasn't. It could have been anything. At one point, it was going to be one of those tube men that stand in front of used car lots and flail their arms around. He would attack one of those. But then the oil pump jack. It's actually very much like the windmill. It's an old abandoned power source i mean that dots the landscape it, it is our version of a windmill what motivated you to set this modern version of the don quixote story in st bernard parish and what was it about that setting that influenced the way you went about constructing all the important elements of the true don quixote uh, i'd written the script and because i'm from south louisiana i knew that all of these kinds of places existed um, but then Jason Wagenspach took us out to St. Bernard and Trey Bravant, the producer and I, were just blown away that everything I had written existed already in this little, not even in all of St. Bernard Parish, in this one area of St. Bernard Parish, or two little areas, um, fantastically rendered, like exactly, almost as though it had been built from the script. It got much easier, actually, when we went to St. Bernard, because so much was there, and not just physically there, but the, the support for the film and the people who were there, the people that got involved in the film. Um, it, it was almost immediate that it, it couldn't happen anywhere else. Beth, of course, you work with your husband as a producer on this film. What was that experience like, and what were your thoughts about seeing everything filmed in St. Bernard Parish? Well, I definitely, you know, can say that my husband and I are very effective producers. We have three beautiful children, so we're used to working in tandem on projects. And this was this was a first for us. Um, you know, there were jokes on on set that we would be debating a certain thing, or we needed to move on something, and we would get spirited. And all the like, Chris and Jason would like wait. They're married. This is normal married speak. Mommy and daddy aren't fighting. It's going to be okay. But it's it was just, um, it was great. He's he's a wonderful producer and he's very intense and um, as am I and we get stuff done. Um, the, the rationale to have this movie done in St. Bernard, as Chris has said, was very much a creative one. And on the producerial side of it, the resources were just really easy for us to do it there. We had two different base camps that we would work out of because none of our stuff uh, was shot 
in a studio. Um, we had real life locations and we needed to figure out a way to do it economically. So um, we had two base camps that we worked out of one for the first two weeks and then we moved ourselves closer to the river for the last two weeks and built all of our, found all of our locations around those two epicenters. And it, it made it very cost effective um, and easy on our crew. We didn't have to move a lot and um, we needed to be economical for, the, for all reasons that way. So it worked out really nicely. I mentioned to you guys earlier that I had grown up in St. Bernard Parish for most of my life up until Hurricane Katrina. And when I was watching the film, I was trying to find some recognizable landmarks or places that I thought I would, you know, easily recognize. What was the production process like for the Truth Don Quixote there? And what, if any, recognizable places in St. Bernard Parish did you film at? Not just where you, where you discussed earlier by the river. Um, there were a bunch of places that residents would, I think, recognize, but that necessarily wasn't our true intention either. Um, of course, walking by the refinery, there's one scene that um, Danny Keogh, he's got ice cream and he's walking by the refinery. I think people would recognize that. We were yeah. down by the river. We were over at the Mira Foundation's central building um, and used it in a way that folks because it was a farmhouse. Um, a lot of roads looked like suburban streets that you would find pretty much anywhere. Um, well, the big signature thing, I think, is the levee, which mm -hmm. is how they get around, and it sort of ties all the locations together, and that's very much a, mm -hmm. not exactly just St. Bernard. It's all of this part of Louisiana, but it, it, it uh, you know, for better or worse, the levees are such a huge part of our lives here um, that, that that became both a physical and a symbolic choice to put them up on that levee uh, throughout all the movie, how they get around. That'd be, I think, the most recognizable thing. And then there's a funny castle-looking house that when we saw it, we've just about lost our minds because it just seemed like such an odd kiss to a knighthood and chivalry. And it's a very interesting architectural structure that... I think folks recognize. What about that bar, the uh, castle, as Don Quixote views it? <laughs> oh. oh, the Cuda. Yeah. Uh, that was one of the places that totally blew our minds because I had written this version of something that they had in the in the 1500s and, and before where, where travelers went to an inn and it had, you know, it was, it was almost like a castle. It was an inn, and you could get food there and get your horses taken care of, and there was lodging. And we walked into this bar, and it was it's a bar, and they have like a little crock pot full of food. And in the back upstairs where the apartments are in the movie is actually built into the CUDA. Like, it's there are five units upstairs from that bar. It was absolutely perfect. They're not hotel rooms. They're apartments, but they played as hotel rooms. And it's in the back, and we needed a parking lot, we needed a balcony, and we needed... We barely did anything to that place. Even the, the f disco lights and stuff were there when we got there. Yeah, we just added a couple more strings of Christmas lights to enhance the Christmas lights they already had. The streamers and the stuff, it, that was pretty much already there. Of course, we did make that neon sign that is on the outside of the building for the nighty night in to dub it and give it a nod to the movie and our own spin but everything else was pretty much there 
talk about how you were able to bring Tim Blake Nelson, Jacob Batalon, and Anne Mahoney on board to star in the true Don Quixote and your memories of working with them during the production. Uh, sure. We got, we got Tim just by a miracle. All of them, actually. We, uh, I was with an agency that was not in any way helpful. So Trey and I, not knowing what else to do, found a casting agent uh, in New York named Stephanie Holbrook, who's dynamite. And she sent me an overwhelming number of videos and names to look at. Uh, we thought we needed a Broadway actor, probably, uh, because this kind of language, if you're not really good, is going to get tedious real fast. So I wanted somebody who's a genuine actor, not just a, a like performer. Uh, and she sent me all these people, and I couldn't possibly scroll through them all and learn them all. And I asked her to send me fewer, which apparently no one has ever asked of anyone. <laughs> no one does that with a director, no. Uh, and she said, fine, what do you want? And I said, I wish I could get somebody like Tim Blake Nelson. Um, he just popped into my head as he would be perfect. And she said, well, let's get Tim Blake Nelson, which I had never occurred to me that was possible. <laughs> and so... Uh, she did. A week later, I was on Skype with him, I think, and uh, we were breaking the script down and laughing, and he was in. And when Tim is in, he is a million percent mm -hmm. in. He, he started in. growing his beard from that moment on. I mean, that's his real beard. We didn't do anything to that or add anything to that. No. We didn't have money yet, and his wife hated it, and he stubbornly grew that bloody beard. <laughs> um, and, and was all in, taught himself to stand on his head because that was in the script, showed up off book, knew his lines, knew everyone else's lines. He's just an incredibly professional, dedicated guy, which shows in the work. I mean, it's extraordinary. And we got Jacob because the guy we originally cast backed out at the last minute and they had the same agent. Um, and he said, hey, uh, maybe you should look at this kid. And so there's a clip of Jacob. We're like, yes, thank you. Uh, because he's perfect. Uh, and he's very much the opposite of Tim, which is what we wanted, in that Tim is really slight and and middle-aged, and Jacob is round and brown and young and funny and has a whole different way about him uh, just as people. And then the characters that they developed, um, they leaned into that quite a bit, which is how Don Quixote and Sancho work. Uh, and he was a gift as well. And then Anne, we knew Anne a little bit um, and just knew that she would be right for that part. That part is really the emotional anchor of the movie. And, and man, she can, she can hit you right in the feelies every time. Mm -hmm. um, and she was extraordinary. I mean, they were all just incredible to work with. We, the whole cast and everyone except Tim and Jacob and the guy that plays Camille, the bar owner, are local. Which is extraordinary. And it was it was very much, too, uh, for us, important that we really went to diversity casting as much as we could with our characters. Um, so that, that was a point. That was an artistic and creative choice um, that we made. And we wanted to represent uh, our southern roots. And down here, there's just a whole range of different people and personalities. And I think we got that right. And in terms of the supporting cast and crew, which is filled with Louisiana-based talent, describe their roles on camera and off in the production of The True Don Quixote and what it was like working with them. They were terrific. Um, everybody bought in. I have to say everybody, the whole crew, the whole cast, 
um, people came to work. They came to have fun. It was a grueling shoot. We shot that whole movie in 21 days. We had lots of setbacks, weather being chief among them. It was hot, uh, it as was one would expect. Hot in hell and wet. Um, and we had limited resources. So everybody knew that they, we didn't have a lot of takes of things. We didn't have a lot of time. We needed people to know their lines. We needed people to be experimental and fun and be in the moment. And every one of them did it. And we asked them to do some pretty crazy stuff. You know, take off your clothes and run in here screaming. And nobody flinched. Mm -hmm. Everybody was game. Um, it felt like a theater company. It really did, too. And we called it jokingly like summer camp. Well, you know, the Bravant summer camp come out and produce us a movie. And the heat of the summer, I mean, it's really hard enough to work on a film set 14 hours a day. Um, but it's a lot harder when you're asking people to do it 95 degrees, with, you know, and 100% humidity. And really, to Chris's point, everyone was just game. And in terms of all the Louisiana homegrown talent involved in the true Don Quixote, including yourselves, how has their work and yours helped you guys and everyone else involved to grow in their careers? And how has making this film impacted you as filmmakers, not just in general, but also as filmmakers working in Louisiana? Well, we don't get to make it if we don't make it here. I mean, that, the reality is the tax credit structure is what allowed us to make it. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, that's not an exaggeration. There's no way we can make this movie and raise this money and get this done without that, without the tax credits. Um, and even the Moreau Foundation was a big part of, of um, so, uh, supported us quite a lot. Um, we got a lot of locations. We got a lot of help. We got a lot of... We had some fine, we got everything uh, um, from local people. We didn't, none of the financing came from outside of Louisiana or a very, very small uh, portion of it did. Everything happened here. Um, and it's been, I don't know, because it's only been out for a couple of days, what kind of impact this will have on anybody. I know one of the act, local actresses, uh, Tim, helped her get an agent in New York. She's been working very consistently since then. Is that Lucy? Yeah, Lucy. Oh, that's great. Um, so, uh, you know, every time you make a movie, somebody gets connected to somebody else, somebody appreciates someone else's work, somebody gets another opportunity to put things on their reel. Um, and a lot of particularly local people, if it's not a really well executed production, can be really fine work and it doesn't show up so much um, because the, the things that need to support that work aren't always there. And I, I think what's great about this is that since everyone really brought their A-game, if you're an actor in this show and you have a clip from this movie, it's well lit, it's well written, it's well, the other acting is good, um, the camera work is good, the music is good, so that everybody kind of got to show off what they can do, which isn't always the case. And I guess from our vantage point, you know, we were limited by, by money and time and resources, and we really are very proud of what we got up on screen. And I think one of the uh, biggest takeaways in the entire experience was summed up when Tim, at our very final night dinner together, talked about, and I'm not gonna quote him perfectly, but basically said, this has gotta be one of, if not the best, filming experiences I've ever had. And that's a huge part of just the attitudes and the professionalism 
that we have here in Louisiana that I think surprised him maybe a little bit because he's so used to working in bigger markets. But because the tax credits exist, our crew is some of the best in the world. They've worked on the biggest stuff. It's just that they can do it in their backyard as opposed to having to live in a New York or LA to do it. Um, and it, that, that is a huge point of pride for us to have heard him say how, um, how supported he felt and really what a great experience that was. And we felt the same. It was like capturing lightning in a bottle. Indeed, and the local actors who were involved were very impressive too, talking about this. Yes, they were. Well, they've got chops. They, they have been doing good work down here. But Louisiana still plays host to major studio productions. How can indies like the true Don Quixote help to keep that industry thriving while also offering more opportunities for native actors and filmmakers like yourself to display their talents? I certainly can speak to that having been a local actor here. One of the things that we experience quite a bit are these big productions will come in for six or seven months and Los Angeles and New York are maybe not aware that our pool is so deep with talent. So the kind of things that we'll get offered and auditioned for tend to be day player roles or two days on set. It tends not to be a supporting character. Um, so in opportunities when, with independent films, they get to do bigger stuff. Um, and it then just showcases their abilities more than allowing them to work in a bigger capacity on bigger productions. Um, the crew also, we were able to film this in the summer because they were in between big, huge projects. We would never have gotten the caliber of our crew if we shot it, say, in October or November when all the big productions are down here filming. Um, so they're in between stuff and squeeze in 21 days for them, get in, get the job done, get the heck out, and then go on vacation is kind of their lifestyle. So that's why we got the great crew that we did. Chris, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, well, we, on a small movie, you can get bumped up in your role. Um, the stunt coordinator, who's a buddy of ours, was primarily a stuntman and was really trying to get a, a, an opportunity to be a coordinator because that's the career path. Um, and he's not going to get that on a Quentin Tarantino movie because there's too much money at stake and nobody knows who he is. And they have a stunt coordinator that they've brought from Los Angeles. But on a small movie like ours that had stunts, but they weren't insane stunts, um, he gets to be the stunt coordinator. And there are a lot of places where people get bigger roles than they usually get. Even Tim is a character actor. And part of his motivation for doing this was that he got to star in a movie and play a big showy, fantastic role um, that he wouldn't get offered in a $100 million movie because they can't, they can't work that way. So one of the great things about making small movies is that everybody gets to step up one. I, I've never directed anything. I stepped up as well. Everybody gets to take on a little more responsibility and learn sort of a new uh, level uh, in their careers. And I had produced commercials and public service announcements and some live action event work, but I had never produced a full feature. So we all got to game up. And the true Don Quixote premiered in October 2018 at the New Orleans Film Festival, where it won the Audience Award for Narrative Film. What were your memories of having the film screened for audiences there and of getting recognized for all the great work that you did on it? Ah, it was fantastic. It was great. Yeah. We made a big hoopla, too, which we tend to do. 
and brought Tim and Jacob in. And they rode up to the, to the CAC on the scooter and mm-hmm. with a tuba player. And some guy randomly dressed up as Don Quixote, complete with bronze statue makeup. I'm sure he was like a face. He was like a, a French Quarter guy. He just walked up. <laughs> it was crazy. I looked at Trey. I was like, "How did we get that?" He goes, "I don't know what. I don't know where that came from." <laughs> we didn't get it. And we, you know, we. It was everybody. I had spent a year, literally, maybe more than a year, locked in a very dark and small room with the editor, um, and I'd seen the movie, you know, many hundreds of times, uh, but I and kind of forgot that nobody else involved had really seen it, uh, at least not outside of the production, the producing team. And so we got to bring in people that worked on the movie, you know, friends of the show and, and then the film, people at the film fest and um, sold it out, almost sold out the second showing, did a great Q&A afterward, had a great reception. It was very rewarding after all that work to finally put it up in front of people and, and, um, and have it go well. I was super stressed out, Chris. I'm not going to lie to you. I had a sword that I was supposed to make sure that got into Chris Poche's hands to give to Tim. And there was some usher that moved it. And I'm running around the theater looking for the stupid sword, like the actual sword. And it was stressful. We got it. We got it taken care of. Even if people who see this film have not read the original Don Quixote novel by Miguel de Cervantes, in what ways do you feel people will identify with the film's common themes and the emotional journeys of its characters, albeit in a decidedly modern setting as the true Don Quixote takes place in? Part of the reason the book has lasted for 400 years is because it's reinterpreted all the time. Every, every generation, every era sort of reinterprets the book. It was originally a satire on knighthood and, and the Spanish aristocracy, and then in, in the Romantic period, it was it, people read it as a an ode to the power of the written word. And currently, I think, when I read it, um, it's a story about owning who you are. It's a story about every artist, everybody that comes out, everybody that declares who they are, um, because they just can't take repressing themselves any longer. Um, I hope that's what people will take away from it. It's like when you... When he steps out on that porch in that costume, that's kind of what everyone wants to do and needs to do is be your weird, one, whatever you are, step out on the porch as that person and go out into the world and people will laugh at you and mock you and, and try to stop you and be threatened by you and you just do it anyway. Um, and then you find your real, your real place and your real friends. It is such an individual movie. You experience it and you find yourself in that movie. And we early on had some screenings for friends and family and just some ancillary people just bring somebody by and give us some thoughts. And one guy at one of the screenings came away with a commentary. Like, is this a commentary about big pharma and and mental illness? And we all were taken aback by that, but okay, that's what he brought to the experience. And we're not going to say no necessarily that wasn't our intent, but he definitely drew something from his experience through that movie. And it happens all the time. Once again, my thanks to today's guest, writer-director Chris Poche of The True Don Quixote and the film's co-producer Beth Brabant for coming on today's Viewfinder podcast. Check out our show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow the Viewfinder podcast on Twitter at ViewfinderPod and on Facebook at facebook.com slash the viewfinder podcast. Of course, if you like what you've heard, 
please invite your friends to listen. I'm Chris Hadley. Thanks for listening.